You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time now for a veteran story with Pete Mecca and his uh, guest uh, that will be coming on very early. Before we get started with the show, though, I wanted to do the same thing that we're going to do with every show that involves veterans, our active duty, military, and that's... Uh, to take one moment and just think about those that have been wounded, those that uh, need thy, need prayer, and if it's uh, active duty or a veteran, or if you have a friend that's a veteran that needs prayer, just give us a, you know, send us a message, and we'll be glad to every day. I've got a good report from my friend, a veteran of Vietnam, and uh, he had... He was a victim of Agent Orange, and uh, he had horrendous mouth surgery, lymph node surgery, and uh, they literally had to take a great bit of his tongue. But uh, they uh, it was has been reconstructed, and he's coming along fantastic, better than they ever anticipated. So, if we can, just pause for just a few seconds, and then we'll go straight to Pete. Okay, this is America's Web Radio, and now let's join Pete and his guest. All right, good morning, America. Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on americaswebradio.com. Our very special lady as my guest today, Rona Simmons. She has written both fiction and fiction, uh, a historian at heart, and the daughter of a World War II fighter pilot. She convinced her father, who had never spoken about the war, to talk about his experiences during World War II. Years later, she images from World War II, celebrating the art of World War II veteran artist Jack Smith, and then began a three-year project to bring her latest book, The Other Veterans of World War II, to fruition. Her writing also includes stories, articles, interviews that have appeared in regional and national literary journals and magazines and newspapers, in print and online. She lives in the Atlanta area and is active in local both for authors, as a speaker and member of the Atlanta, Atlanta's Writers Club and the Georgia Writers Association, and for veterans, as a member of the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, where I am her commander, Georgia Veterans Group. She's contributing author and book reviewer for DODread.org, an organization dedicated to reading and lifelong learning, and a volunteer for Stories Behind the Stars, research and writing stories for each 100,000 Americans that fell during World War II. Her most of the other veterans of World War II, Stories Behind the Front Lines, came out in April of this year. She also took, of course, World War II, Images of World War II, The Art of Jack Smith. She co-authored that book. And other relevant books, historical fiction set in the first half of the 20th century, Postcards from Wonderland, and The Quiet Room. I'm also going to add that wherever I go to make presentations or conduct the uh, Atlanta World War II roundtable or go to listen to someone speak or go to any kind of veterans 
gathering or organization, I can look across the room and there sits Rona. You'll never get she gets home. around more than I do. She is one heck of a veterans advocate. I'm going to start a show. Rona, welcome to the show. Stacy, thank you very Stephanie. much, Pete. That is a wonderful introduction, and um, I hope I can well, live up to the have earned it and deserve it. Uh, first of all, let's get to your latest book, The Other Veterans of World War II was released in April this year. So let's start there. What is the book about? Well, World War II, of course, as the title says, but um, I think it takes a little different perspective than, than most people expect, as it's um, the war seen through the eyes of a, a different veteran. There are 19 men and women who tell their stories in the book, and they're not the usual suspects. They're non-combat soldiers, people who serve behind the non-combatants, but non-combat. Some of them served across the United States, some just, I'd say, feet behind the front lines, and others halfway around the world in the Gobi Desert. But to a person, man or woman, I think each day they did nothing special, and that was kind of the theme that uh, I heard over and over again, and so I was out to prove differently. Um, I follow each of the veterans from Pearl Harbor, when most of them went to the recruiting center, to when they were transferred to the theater of war that they served in, and then as they came home. But I like to say the book is more than just 19 stories. I've taken their own words and then write them in the context of the war, uh, turning to research to find out little details and sprinkled them across the stories. And I think it's that combination of just their words, the history, and the details that, that really make the book come alive. Yeah, I know the, the you know, behind every soldier with a rifle into combat, there's 10 support troops behind them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's critically important to have those support troops, and the people behind the lines are really the ones that victory in any kind of conflict. Uh, Rona, what inspired you to write this book? Well, as you mentioned, um, my father was a P-38, uh, World War II pilot, uh, fighting out of North Africa. And the uh, 50th anniversary of the end of the war, so 25 years ago now, um, Hill hadn't really said much. Uh, he wasn't reluctant. It's just no one had really ever asked him. And that I found to be true in any cases when I spoke with a veteran um, no one had asked them, so they never really spoke. But down, and we talked, and we got out his old folder full of his records and went mission by mission. And the thing that, that um, I noticed was that he really came alive and got into the details of each mission, had almost total recall, which was amazing. But um, mostly, I think, after hour after hour, what we thought might be an hour or two long conversation, um, he got up and where he stood an inch taller. He he felt so good. And I said, if, if that it can happen with him, it can happen with others. So I, I was determined to go speak with other veterans who hadn't had the same opportunity. But I wanted a different approach. Uh, and so I, I came up with the idea of the non-soldiers. And uh, even though most of us think of them as mechanics or truck drivers, or it's a pejorative term, pencil pushers, desk jockeys, and worse, which I won't repeat here, I was convinced that image was false. I, I set about that, the mission to find them. I was actually challenged by uh, another local Atlanta author 
Frank Cox, who was a Marine forward observer in Vietnam, and he wrote a lullaby tenants. And there was a, a sentence in there when I read his book that sort of woke me up. He said, as an air-ground liaison officer, and I'm reading, we would avoid the messy job of being in or attached to the infantry. It also would be more exciting than the mundane option, motor transport officer, or worst of all, an embarrassment in front of your peers, supply officer. I, and I said, I think I've found my angle. Um, the point of view of these men and women who weren't on some front lines, not carrying weapons, as you said, they, they deserve better. So I'll come back to Frank Cox later, but um, he was an inspiration or, or, as I said, a challenge. And, of course, there is luck. Um, I, I was very fortunate because, um, as you know, as you said, I'm very involved with the local communities and, and World War II um, uh, supporters of remembering. And I was um, able to, a couple of uh, noted authors who write about World War II, and um, they you know, helped me shape the book and decide exactly how I was going to go forward. So uh, really kind of a confluence of factors, all those things. All right. Very good. Did you say your father was a 38 pilot? He was. He, he said he was. I interviewed a gentleman named Hattendorf up in North Georgia. Mm -hmm. He was a P-38 pilot in North Africa also. And the interesting thing about uh, Mr. Hattendorf, his wingman was his younger brother. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, back in World War II, after the Sullivans were killed, they weren't supposed to do that. But I have found numerous stories where brothers and twin brothers served together. Did you ever run into that, Rona? Uh, no, um, most of these people were, maybe they knew someone, or I think early on they, of course, trained, they went for um, training with some of their friends, but it seems like they were spread further after that. Uh, it's one of the things in the book that I found that um, you know, not only did they leave their home far flung, some halfway around the world from anyone they knew and anything experienced before, so... I know there are stories, like you say, of World War II in which um, friends, uncles, even father and son um, worked together uh, or were assigned to the same station. Um, I haven't seen one in the air with somebody yet. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, I know that uh, in Vietnam we lost fathers and sons over there. We lost brothers. We lost twin brothers. Very, very nasty business. Um, well, I tell you what, I envy your father. I thought the P-38 was going to have a fighter during World War II. Uh, can you spare something about the process of writing the book? You know, there's no doubt it required a great deal of research on your part. Well, um, research is, uh, is, in capital letters, I'd say, as you well know, and uh, from what you do. Um, but um, there, there were challenges. Uh, I wish I had started this project much earlier um, because, if, A, it would have been easier to find people. I, I did have to rely on word of mouth and networking. Um, met, in fact, two, two of the veterans who are portrayed in the book. I met at uh, one of your meetings at the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, and they agreed. I think everybody was suspicious of why why I wanted to tell their story. They all said, though, there's nothing special about it. But um, my 
Yeah, my own memory isn't what it used to be, and so I could hardly imagine when I started out what a 90-year-old's memory would be, and when you ask them to uh, think about events that happened 70 years earlier. So um, I, I thought that would be a challenge, but it was very surprising um, how many of them, uh, when once they started, uh, they might say, well, I have to think about that, or let me go get a, a, a book or a journal or a memoir or something and, and look at it to refresh their memory. But many of them remembered uh, down to the smallest detail things that they saw and did. But I knew that we would have to do some research. Um, and luckily, I think any writer is a researcher at heart or finds themselves having to delve into a great deal of behind-the-scenes information in order to make the book um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Rona, we, we lose these World War II veterans so fast, uh, both the frontline troops and the support troops. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I both know that it's going to come the time, probably in our life, uh, that we'll see the last pass. And with them, to me, goes the, the last true story. After that, it's all redacted stuff and, and rewritten Um we're losing it's it's frightening losing them so fast uh, it scares me how about you absolutely one of the things uh, when i started i found some of the veterans administration numbers that reported 1.7 million veterans were left out of the 16 million had served and over the course of just the three years they're now predicting about 250 to 280,000 by the end of this year so um it's it's happening yeah, I think, as, as we sit here. Yeah, Absolutely. Don't let me interrupt you. I think there's about maybe 300,000 left right, uh, today. The last mm-hmm. I heard, anyway, and the same for the Vietnam veterans. Yeah. Uh, Rona, we're going to our first break, and okay. we will be right back, okay? Okay. Morning. Uh, this is David Moxley in the Classic Car Show, and uh, we've got. <sighs> A great job to do right now, and that's welcome a new advertiser to the Classic Car Show. And many of you have seen their trucks on the road as well as know and have used them over the in the past. <laughs> and it's um, we've got uh, Steve Capper on the line with us, and he's with McAllister's Transportation Group. And um, Steve, how are you doing today? morning, David. I'm fine. How about yourself? Just fine. And tell us something about uh, what you do as well as... Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchek. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hey folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday, 2 to 3, live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry, I'm just right. All right, well, we're back on the Simmons. Uh, Rona, you have a story about a uh, merchant marine. Tell us that story. 
Yes, um, well, it's really, uh, I think, illustrates the difficulties or uh, of, of very scant information. Um, Bud Surprenant was one of the veterans that I met through his son. Bud had passed, and uh, as we were saying, when they when they leave us, they take their story with them. So, reconstructing uh, what happens from a veteran's letters or a son's memory summary is really part of the job, but. Um, Bud was uh, with the Merchant Marine, and the Merchant Marine was not really recognized or, or still is not a, a, an official branch of the military like, say, the Navy or Army, Coast Guard. But um, he was in high school and signed on, and um, what I learned was son's letters was that he was a porter uh, on one of the many, many Merchant Marine ships that we had. Of course, I... I, I questioned, well, what kind of a story is that? And they're really not part of the official military. Where were they going to go with that? But uh, I, through research, I learned um, that as before the, before the America was actually in the war and was uh, had declared war on our primary role, um, we know from the Lend-Lease Act, was to supply Europe with equipment, um, anything from uh, tanks to trucks to arms, whatever they needed. And we had to ship those through the Merchant Marine. They were largely responsible for everything that went over to England and to the continent before we were part of the war. And unfortunately, those ships were prey for the German U-boats that were coming from Germany um, across the ocean uh, and wreaking havoc on the ships. And I found that 700 ships were sunk and 2,000 men lost their lives, all merchant marines and merchant marine ships. And that was the highest mortality rate of any of the actual services. So it uh, put Bud in a, in a lot different light to me. Uh, he might have been only a porter, but uh, from his letters I learned he didn't just take one trip England across the channel to deliver supplies later on D-Day after uh, we had declared all. He was still going across the ocean. He made six trips on D-Day itself to resupply the troops. So without the details that you can find in their letters or really looking into history, I would never have had an for the Merchant Marine or, or Bud Suprinant. He's, he's one of the highlights of the book. I, I think he... he um, you learn so much about a very different aspect. Well, I, I did some research uh, on the Merchant Uh Percentage-wise, the United States Marines had the highest casualty race, rate. Right behind them was the Merchant Marines. Percentage-wise, right. they had the highest casualty race, except for the Marines in World War II. I think very few people know that. That's correct. Um, and I, they fight for recognition for what they did, and I was very gratified. I had the opportunity to go to the uh, National World War II Museum in New Orleans and found they have their own exhibit uh, space in, in, the, in the museum. So uh, when I saw that, I quickly wrote Bud's son to tell him about it and took some pictures so that he would be able to see it. So it's a great... Yeah, I've interviewed uh, probably four or five in World War II, and uh, they didn't have a real easy job. I mean, they were basically unarmed except for maybe a few anti-aircraft guns and the German submarines especially were just uh, vicious off our east coast. I don't know how many merchant marines died off our east coast because it was lit up like a Christmas tree at the start of World War II. Um, I guess you knew that too. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> well, it took us a long time to figure out that we needed to uh, turn the lights off in our port cities because they would highlight the um, ships would leave harbor. They were silhouetted very visibly for the Germans, and we lost ships going just even you know, miles from our own shore. And unfortunately, many, many of our fallen were washed ashore, something that the U.S. tried to keep out of the newspapers for a very long time, not so successfully back then. Um, but uh, you, know, you can't imagine going to the going to the beach when you thought we were not at war and finding mm-hmm. soldiers washed up. So very tragic situation. Then, uh, there were German submarines in the Gulf of Mexico too, right yes, off were. Uh, yes. Texas and, and fact, Louisiana. Um, a lot yeah. of our ships went down in the Gulf of Mexico, and a lot of people don't realize that there's some sunken German, German submarines out there too. Yes, there are, and um, it's interesting, as part of one of these um, volunteer activities I do, I was portraying some men who died on uh, the USS Sturdivant, who, a ship that was uh, leaving uh, Florida and uh, was not that we had a U.S. mined area off the coast of Florida. Um, they, so at the time, didn't consider it worth telling anyone about, and the ship ran into it and, of course, exploded in our own in our, you know, friendly fire, you might call it, but um, it's a very tragic event. We lost over 115 uh, people. That's a little scary. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite story, Rona? Well, that's, that's, I always tell people when they say, oh, uh, which is the, you know, if I bought your book, which one are <laughs> And, um, of course, each veteran I gave... Um, a copy of the book, too, and they, well, I turned to my story and I read it first, but um, I always say it's very difficult. I there's I have things, memories of, of speaking with the veterans or their sons or daughters. It's a, it's a uh, to use a World War II, uh, it's, it's like a Sophie's Choice. It's very hard to pick one. Um, but there, there is one that I, I usually cite because it was the first. And that is of Pete Peterson. Um, I actually, he was seized, but I met his daughter uh, in the process of writing my earlier book. And um, he, he, as she told me, was with Graves Registration. Now, this was at the very early days in my book. And despite what I, about the military and my family having served in the military, what Graves Registration was, or the quarter, part of the Quartermaster Corps, I didn't even know that. But um, Pete was, um, he had been a, 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 in high school, and just after high school, he had worked in a bakery. And when the World uh, War broke out, he decided to, to enlist, like many other people did, and without really regard to what he wanted to do, he just wanted to serve and he was assigned to the Quartermaster Corps. And what he knew about it was they ran the bakery laundries um, and helped them with the supplies, but they also had a, you called Graves Registration Services. But he assumed he would be assigned to the bakery and, and went off to training, and even through boot camp, that's what he thought he was going to do. And then he found himself um, aligned Graves Registration. And that is, as I did my research and found one of the most horrific um, positions that, that anyone might be able, uh, might be asked to serve. He wasn't quite sure himself what that meant, but he trained and then went overseas and found himself 
uh, following Patton's army across Europe. And Gray's registration people were responsible for uh, setting up a cemetery. So he would go out to a local area, a town, and acquire, so to speak, actually tell the farmers that uh, we needed their land or this plot of their land to create a cemetery, and they gave them a chit that they could redeem to get their land back at the end of the, uh, end of the war. He would then construct the cemeteries, as well as um, then receive or cult America's fallen after the battle, inter them, and then move on with the, um, with the army. And um, it's very interesting because Pete, uh, it was the first time I, I really got an insight into how these people felt about their surface, again, because they were not in combat. And he said he, his favorite uh, class in high school had been geometry, actually. So um, about what he was doing, he decided that he would give the soldiers uh, all the respect that deserved. And he created cemeteries using geometry. He was determined that they would have perfect alignment, perfectly square corners. Uh, the, the, the rows of the graves and headstones you know, would be almost a, a, a Normandy situation today. We think of Normandy, but that was his, you know, but long before Normandy existed, that was his intent. And so he decided he would do his job to the absolute best of his ability. And, of course, the um, soldier to keep meticulous records that was part of their duty was not only to receive these fallen, but also to make sure that they were identified and that the uh, location of their um, grave was, was recorded. Because after the war... Uh, when we ended, we had 350 cemeteries in Europe. And the families uh, in America were given the choice of whether they wanted to repatriate their soldiers, their, their sons or daughters or uh, cousins, uncles, leave them in Europe. And about half ended up um, asking for their soldiers to return, and, and the other half remained in place across the globe. And in what we now know as the 29 national cemeteries, including Norway, the, the men had to go back after the war and disinter them, send them home, and they could have done that had people like Pete um, not kept, uh, had, had, had kept the as accurately as they could so that they could be reinterred in the, what we now know as the, the, the cemeteries across Europe and actually Philippines uh, as well. Hold on. We have to go to our, our next break. Okay. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email mag45cag at gmail.com and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at mag45cag at gmail.com. Is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, thank you very much, David. Uh, Rona, tell us, uh, you were talking about your favorite stories and everything. You mentioned a pigeoneer. Tell the folks about a pigeoneer. <laughs> well, I'm still looking for him. Actually, um, one of the things uh, I found in, in trying to figure out, uh, as I wrote the book, I wanted to make sure I had a widespread uh, group not, uh, so that they weren't all mechanics or all truck drivers or all any one particular um, job and what I found that there were over 550 that the army alone had to fulfill so uh, even though these men wanted to do one thing or another or maybe they didn't express uh, a preference uh, there were quite a number of jobs that we don't think about and that's why I think there's so many um, probably at least 50-50 of the 16 million at least uh, around 8 million the numbers vary everywhere from 6 to 10 million were non-combat um, and I, I say, you know, there were mechanics, there were truck drivers, but the army all, and, and, and pilots too, like we were, the army also had to find uh, saddle and harness makers, and at first that struck me interesting, um, but we still had mounted cavalry um, at the beginning of the war, and pigeoneers, and so we were obviously still sending messages, not exclusively, but um, when needed by pigeon and um i am very hopeful one day of finding the story of an actual pigeoneer i can assure you that wonderful book but i haven't located him yet at this point not not quite yet okay, so still you, with me uh, yes mm-hmm. okay uh i did a story about the pigeoneers they were they were uh, in the italian battles especially around monte casino they, they used the uh, pigeons uh very often uh, one hero pigeon from that area too. Did you ever uh, find anything about that? I've heard about that, uh, but no. But um, maybe we can write a book together. There we go. <laughs> All right. Yeah, they were very unusual. You know, all my relatives uh, in World War II, my uncles and everything. Every one of them were in uh, combat. Uh, my father, my uncles, uh, but they they still tell the stories of people behind the lines. Uh, the, the medics, the medical staff, the cooks, uh, you know, the Napoleon said an uh, uh, army crawls on its stomach and it has to be fed. Uh, have you ever heard uh, of this? Uh, I did. There is one, um, a messman uh, who was out of Pella. He's in the book as well. And he, um, interestingly, he... He, after since he worked in Pensacola for the war, uh, for the uh, naval navy, and then uh, decided to enlist and continue to cook. And he was a, a fairly small um, in stature, uh, just over five five feet some inches. And he thought the best thing I should do is go work on a submarine, and because he thought his small stature would help. And he um, went to his supervisor uh, at Pensacola and said he wanted to change and and volunteer to go on the submarine force. And his uh, commanding officer looked at him and said, echoing what I told him were Napoleon's words, when we hear of an army marches on his belly, well, his 
his command officer said, Howard, what is could possibly be more important than food? Howard, Howard was sort of dumbfounded, and he stayed um, as a cook, um, and actually he did more, more, much more than that, but um, uh, you know, supplying this troop still, and ended up working, uh, transferred to the uh, Philippines uh, board a ship, and then uh, on the islands there, and, and helping uh, to distribute food. A very interesting story, a, a gentleman who ended up in the the deputy administrator with the FAA along hour, so um, he still looks back on those humble beginnings with great pride. I uh, I don't know if you knew this, but the submariners are pretty good food, but sometimes they wanted uh, like vegetables and stuff like that in the Pacific uh, at the start of the war. For about two years, our submariners would surface and trade goods with. Japanese fishermen, which were basically lookouts for the Japanese fleet and Japanese submarines, still traded goods. Uh, right. <laughs> which I right. thought was pretty weird. They uh, were very invasive. Yeah. Yep. Also, uh, inter- I did get to interview. I talked to a man who was a cook in the Navy in World War II. And I said, Well, I'd like to write your story. He said, You know, oh, I don't have a story to tell. I said, right. Well, were you on a ship? Yeah. Which one? I said, He said, The Gambier Bay. Your bay was suck at Left Pay Go. He said, Yeah, we went to the water, but I don't have a story to tell. That's what they all say. Yeah. Amazing. I, I, uh, Go ahead. Uh, are there any surprises that you discovered in writing the book? Oh, gosh. It seems like, uh, as you say, every one of them had something or one part of their story led to another. Um, I think. Uh, it, in one sense, I was struck by how many people um, actually rushed to the to the recruiting centers after Pearl Harbor. I mean, we've seen the pictures, but it, it really was true. Um, everyone almost dropped what they were doing and um, rushed to the to the recruiting centers after Pearl Harbor and uh, the attacks there. Uh, it's very. You wonder what would happen today if we would have the same sort of experience. Uh, my own father, when we were talking about what happened on 9-11 and the rush of sort of patriotism that, that swept across America, and he, even he, but long, just days after, said, I don't think it will last. And, and of course, there was a lot of flag-waving, but then, you know, within, while we remember 9-11, it, it, it was not anywhere right. near the same as the um, emotions that filled the country in, right after Pearl Harbor. And I did ask no. one of the veterans... Um, uh, several of them could, could they help explain what they saw and why they enlisted? And um, I don't inter- hear any squealing. <coughs> Excuse me. Interesting. Um, what? Eleanor Fry from uh, Tennessee Here? was one of the first U.S. Hmm. Navy waves, the, the women who volunteered hmm. in the it's war, and she good. said, um, in her words, "I can't really explain to anyone why I joined." It was, she said, just a different time back then, and, and I think to a person they all said that. It wasn't so much a surprise as it was a, really an explanation. And I think another thing was that so many of them wanted to fly. Uh, I mean, my father said, well, you know, it was flight was new, it was adventuresome, it was dangerous, and um, he even used the words at 97 that was a, you know, made you a chick magnet. So 
um, all the young men wanted to be out there and get those silver wings, um, and not as many obviously got their wish as, as wanted to fly because they had to fill these other positions we were talking about. But um, the I think one more thing might be that mm-hmm. unlike what we see in the movies of, say, most famously, the Band of Brothers, um, I expected to find a lot of them had these lasting relationships with the, the men and women that they um, stood beside. And I found that the non-combat veterans, maybe because uh, even though under fire or at the front lines, they tended to still look to home and family as their primary focus. Uh, so it was a little different twist, and not that some don't have long or didn't have long-term relationships, but by and large they were not found um, in the other uh, uh, positions. Mm-hmm. And one gentleman told me, uh, you know, I asked each of them, too, whether they had any regrets of not serving in combat, because most had intended combat. And um, James Nalen, who uh, lives today here in Georgia, said he he was a mechanic in England, and he had wanted to fly and could not for physical reasons. But he said they have second thoughts and were concerned that they weren't doing all that they could. And um, he said, but when the first casualties came back, when they saw the men returning um, wounded and without limbs, he said they were just incredibly thankful that they weren't required to give that or weren't going to give that type of service. Yeah, I, I, I talked to a, a couple guys, uh, not all of them, but John centers were ruthless at first. I mean, they they just looked for any excuse not to send someone away, um, you know, doing their duty, you know, or what they viewed as their job to have, you know, perfect people and flat feet, and not enough teeth, illiterate. Um, there were many, many reasons, uh, at least at the beginning of the war, and those, of course, they um, needed more and more people to be sent. Yeah. Uh, what did you want people come away with after reading the book? Well, I hope, like me, that they think about the war that they didn't know. Um, I mean, there's, there's still much, much... Um, these, especially about the men and women who weren't in the spotlight, it's it's relatively easy to turn on the TV and see a story or you know, watch a movie uh, or a series about the war and see the fighting, see the, um, you know, tanks and planes, but not, it's very hard to find those stories about the people behind the lines who I think have been overlooked. Um, And I found an an unlikely source of of support for my book from George Patton, someone we think of, of course, as being one of the combat leaders. And uh, there was a quote he mentioned um, that uh, all of the real heroes, are not storybook combat fighters. Every single man plays a vital role. And it's so good to see someone like Patton give recognition for the many, as we said, millions who played some role other than a combat role. And um, 
I'll mention one other thing. Frank Cox, who I, I alluded to earlier, uh, the Marine Forward Observer in Vietnam, he read my book um, after it, uh, or just before it came out, and I asked his opinion because he was a gentleman I mentioned earlier who had uh, said with horror he was glad he wasn't a supply officer in Vietnam. And um, he said, and I'll read a quote he gave me um, for the book, he said, I saw a lot of combat and rarely thought about her who assisted us. In fact, we doing the actual fighting derisively alluded those in the rear as weaklings, but Simmons has changed my mind. And I think I am as proud of that statement as I am of finishing the book, that I could um, open someone eye, someone's eyes a different side of the war and realize that these people deserve some credit that they seldom get. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to go to the last break moment. We'll be right back, folks, with this wonderful, wonderful guest. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show. You ever find yourself wondering if you're getting the truth or can you find the truth? Well, don't fear. Tune in every Tuesday, 2 to 3, right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show, where I won't... Okay, coming back in 3, 2, 1, and it's yours. Okay, sure, and um, I know this is something you know a lot about, um, work with them. I um, Once I finished the book, uh, I had a interest in um, finding another story, just uh, or, or hearing, allowing another veteran to tell their name. Wherever I go, um, my husband, who's also a Vietnam-era veteran, and I will invariably stop anyone with a blue cap that says World War II on it, grocery store, on the sidewalk, wherever we happen to go, and stop and ask them, you know, what what did you do? And I, it's, it's a very rewarding you'll experience. You'll, you'll see the veterans' eyes light up. But more than just stopping them, asking is encouraging them to capture their story, and I hope that people, after reading my book or uh, hearing this broadcast, will... We'll do the same and, and try to find, and if they know of a veteran and they're recorded their story, to get them to do that. Um, there's a, a, what's known nationally as the Veterans History Project out of the Library of Congress, but anyone um, can have their um, story told and captured on, on video or audio, and all they have to do, well, they can come Veterans History Project online. They can also go to a library, a university, call you, they can call me and contact us and, and we'll be happy to put them in touch with these people because as you said, these are um, disappearing and we need to we need to capture them. There's never anything better than their own words as opposed to having to reconstruct a, a, a story long after the veteran sure. has, has passed. I'm record their story the National Archives, even the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, like you say, when, when they're gone, their story goes with them. And we really hope we can contact more 
especially World War II, for real, to, uh, to tell their story. I'm sure you'll agree with that. Absolutely, yes. And in fact, um, there's one other project I'm involved with, which is the Stories Behind the Stars that you mentioned earlier on. And this is a, a, an all-volunteer project um, to make sure that all 400,000 Americans who fell in, during the war, regardless of the circumstances, uh, regardless of where they served, that they exist as more than a name, rank, and serial number. We um, each take uh, whatever veteran month, and um, I've done 65 so far, and I'm uh, working on my up to 100 and uh, hopefully beyond that. But we're trying in 2020 to do as many as possibly can be done. There are now, um, I started, I think there will be volunteers. There are now 400 volunteers from around the globe who are working on this. And we do the research with things like Ancestry.com, Find a grave. Uh, look at letters, uh, journals, uh, other books on people who, uh, who've written about World War II. If they mention a particular veteran, and try to capture their stories, so that they will be. Uh, eventually, they will have an app that allows anyone visiting uh, one of the cemeteries across the globe, if they point their phone at the name. Uh, on the tombstone that they'll be able to read the stories that we're writing. So it's a very um, ambitious but rewarding project. I bet. Do you, do you go to the uh, National Archives and also like the uh, Army hit, uh, from the D.C. files and, and the Navy files, Marine files up in D.C.? If I, 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 I think I live 24 by 7 on, on any of those sites. <laughs> and uh, just uh, recently at the Savannah um, Mighty Eight uh, Museum uh, just a couple weeks ago in um, Mighty Eight Air Force uh, and using their library. So I've done online or in person um, wherever I can go and uh, uh, need need to research specific stories. Yes. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> found the three bases on Father's station where he's flying across the front. Uh, to me, it's just fascinating that we can find out what now because we have the internet so many research engines out there. So you get well of too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, are you on? Yes. What else are you working on right now? Well, um, I guess I'm... I'm um, still working on World War II. I don't know if you can ever be finished, uh, although I <laughs> think I need to go to Korea, Vietnam. But um, I am actually working on two books, uh, again, about World War II, one fiction and one nonfiction, this time about uh, pilots um, who served in the 8th Air Force, and that was part of the reason for my trip to Savannah, um, because it's the the home of the uh, many many records uh, about the Eighth Air Force and the Bloody One Hundredth, which I'm concentrating on. And uh, these take so many years to research. I can't tell you when they might see um, see the market, but I am very hopeful within a year or two to have one or the other um, out there. Uh, but it's um, it's a pattern. Um, I learned so much, and there's still so much more to know. Uh, about the war and about the various places and positions that people served. Absolutely. Uh, so the 8th Air Force, uh, their uh, museum is in Savannah, is that correct? That's correct. 
um, but just in their in their conscience. Uh, when I was in Savannah, I walked by um, a memorial to the Savannians lost in World War II, and it was so rewarding to see the five names of the Savannians who were aboard the USS Indianapolis on that monument. And it, it made the monument much more than just a monument. It, it really was something that I felt there's you know this person and that person that I know the story of, and I think other people see yeah. it as a monument and sort of overlook the names, but those names mean so much, and we, we do have to keep the word out there in front of people. And uh, Talk writing is probably the best thing I, I know to do. Now, I'm sure you've been down to what they call the Twitter game, uh, right across the state capitol. They have done some great work with uh, monuments and things like that to honor each and every American that's fallen in combat. Have you some of those? Uh, I have, and, and like you say, um, the names are there, and I'm hopeful that you know, one or more, maybe if that comes to fruition, that people will be able to um, see, like they do with the World War II Museum in New Orleans, uh, you pick a soldier as you go in, if you choose, and um, just at random or someone you know, and you're able to follow that person's history of the war through the museum, and it points you in each of the exhibits what they were doing or um, where they were and how they served, and I think that's the key, is to make it personal. And they do a good job of it, and I think that's somewhat some of what we're trying to repeat in other venues is to to make this a personal thing, and that 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 I think draws people in. Yeah. Uh, tell folks how they can uh, get one of your books. Well, my books, all of them are available on Amazon, of course, and um, all of the regular uh, online sites. Um, they're also available in the Atlanta area uh, and available anywhere um, books are sold. You can certainly request copies from your favorite bookstore. Um, and here in the Atlanta area, they're available at Foxtail and Bookmiser and um, at Barta. But um, wherever you like to purchase your books, you can find mine. Okay. Where is the next presentation? Where, where are you speaking at next? Uh, well, in October... Um, uh, uh, I will be have, uh, speaking at the Broadleaf Writers Conference, and then in November, a number of editions, um, most of them will be on Zoom because of COVID, uh, possibly one in-person event at the Georgia Writers Museum. Uh, but anyone who would like to hear more, um, have some Rotary Clubs lined up, um, but I'm most happy to speak to any and all groups that are within a reasonable distance. Are you staying busy? Absolutely. I'm <laughs> just like you and I, all the rest of us. Hey, Pete. Okay. Uh, great, great interview. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.